I just realized I don't have a microphone, so I'll have to stay put today. I don't like that. I like to move. Uh, but grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 2, the second psalm, the first scripture I would like for you to look at in your Bible with me this morning. We're taking a break from 1 Corinthians today. We have uh, a lot of events before us between now and the end of the year. There are some years when you say, wow, it's November already, and it feels like the year's over. Uh, Not this year. (laughs) It's November, but it does not feel like the year's over, does it? And I would like to speak to some of the things that we should be thinking as Christians today. In fact, this Wednesday, instead of our typical Acts Bible study, we will be going uh, to have a night of prayer together, an evening of prayer. So you can be here at 7 o'clock, normal time. We'll still have a kids' class. We'll still have nursery for the kids. But for the adults in here, we'll have an evening of prayer together. That'll be, of course, 24 hours after the election. Surely there won't be any results yet. (laughs) So a great time to gather and pray. Uh, That's our, our plan for this Wednesday. And today I want to present to you an election day devotional. It'll be more of a devotional today. I want to blast you with some biblical exhortations for our good, for all of us. And so why don't I open with a prayer and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for this life, for this fellowship that we have as believers. Thank you for your kindness. You have showed us great patience and uh, we certainly haven't received what we deserve. Lord, thank you. We ask that we would not be dominated by fear in this life, but that we would seek hope and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that we would live lives full of faith, that we would be fixed on Jesus, our eyes would be fixed on our Savior, that we wouldn't look around at the waves and begin to sink, as Peter did, but that our eyes would be fixed on you. Give us confidence in your lordship, in your good sovereignty and authority. Give us a peace that passes all understanding, imparted by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Lord, I ask that this morning... As we look into your word and we consider what your word has to say to our hearts in times such as these and in all times, I ask that this would be a time of great blessing for us, that though I am sinful through and through, both by nature and by choice, you would use me to speak clearly from your word and that your word would touch the hearts of your people. Give us a sweet fellowship around your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. And you open your eyes and my microphone's on. It's magic. Magic. Well, the first part of the message today, I want to talk about deceitful democracy. If you have your bulletin, you have notes in there, you can follow along. Deceitful democracy, 
because I'm afraid that many of us have been deceived into believing certain things about ourselves and certain things about the world around us that simply aren't true. And I recognize that we're not a democracy in America. We are a democratic republic. Um, we're, we're not a democracy, and that's good in some ways, uh, good in a lot of ways. Uh, democracy has its pros and its cons, but I'm not here to critique uh, systems such as that here this morning. What I want to do this morning is help provide perspective. Out of all the things we could talk about, political systems, government strategies, certain candidates and their platforms and all of those things, I think all of that pales in comparison to just talking about how Christians should think, how Christians should believe, what Christians should believe. And I want to speak to you as your pastor and with a heart for you this morning, concerned that perhaps some of our hearts have been led astray by the news media, by our own fears, by our flesh. I want us to focus on that together to get perspective this morning. And when it comes to the deceitfulness of democracy, there are three statements I want to address this morning for the first part of the message. Three statements that we're prone to believe as we're tempted to give in to political thinking in our world, especially in our democratic republic's uh, election season. We're very prone to give in to believe some things that just simply aren't true. And the first thing, the first statement I want to address that is simply untrue is that this is the most important event of fill-in-the-blank. And maybe you've heard that during this election cycle. This is the most important event of your lifetime. Or if someone was extremely audacious, this is the most important event in history. Well, if that's the kind of statement that's been made, our ignorance of world history and current events in the world condemns us as a very conceited and prideful people, doesn't it? Um, it takes great gall to believe that this blip of time is preeminent or the most consequential in your life or in the lives of others around you. This statement exalts the here and now to the detriment of so many things we need to learn and see and understand about the world. And I want to present to you a couple of Proverbs. They'll be up on the screen. Proverbs 16, verse 18 Proverbs is great for keeping us in check with our pride, isn't it? Pride goes before destruction, or maybe you know the phrase, pride comes before the fall, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. In Psalm eight, or, uh, Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. When we get so puffed up into thinking that we have the ability to declare this moment or this event as the most important or the most consequential, that's pretty prideful, isn't it? That's pretty puffed up. That's pretty haughty. We don't have the authority to declare such things. And in Psalm 2, that you hopefully have your Bible open to, I want us to see some things in here that address this issue. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Rex read for us earlier, why are the nations in an uproar? <laughs> is, the Bible, is the Bible relevant? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You see, when we focus on today and this particular day and age as being especially important, as being unique, as being different throughout all of world history or throughout our lifetime, we are ignoring what the Scriptures say. The Scripture teaches us that the nations have been restless for a long time. The Scriptures teach us that human authority, generally speaking, has constantly been seeking autonomy from the true capital A authority. Human governments, generally speaking, desire to be free, to tear off the fetters of the one true capital G governor, God Himself. The nations have been restless throughout all of human history since the fall. Since there have been nations, they've been restless. And God has been in the heavens laughing. God has been sitting in the heavens doing whatever He pleases, scoffing at those who plot in vain. What can they do to overthrow the plan of God? I love that verse in Job where he declares, God has a plan, who can thwart it? I love that word, to thwart. Who can thwart the plan of God? This is about perspective. We need to have perspective that when we say this is the most important event, this election or whatever it may be is the most important event of fill in the blank, we're ignoring the overarching attitude of humanity in the world and what God is doing in the world, and how every moment is important, and how every moment is consequential, particularly for you individually in your life. The decisions you make day in and day out are very important, vastly important, consequential, affect everything else you do. And the peoples will continue to plot in vain as the Lord continues to laugh. It's been going on, it will continue to go on. A second statement that we're prone to believe as we think politically is it's up to us, the statement that it is up to you and me. Look at Proverbs 21.1. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen again. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. In a very real sense, God is directing the nations. God is directing the leaders of nations. And we learn in the New Testament in Romans 13 that whatever institutions, whatever governments exist, exist because God put them there. And I used to believe when I thought I was much freer than I really am, I used to believe that when Romans 13 talks about God establishes the governments, what that means in a democratic republic like ours is that God sets up the idea of government. He sets up the three branches of our government, and it's up to us then freely to choose who we'll put in. God's not involved in placing certain individuals in places. That's our job. He just creates the shell, and we fill it in, is what I thought. But that's not what the Scriptures say. He places the kings in positions of authority. 
He's the one who directs the individuals to be in those places. He is so involved, just as he's involved in a near-miss car accident, and he protected and manipulated the situation every step of the way, and we thank him for it. So he is involved in human affairs and establishing governments, and we should thank him for it because he's involved and the heart of the king is in his hand. God is the one who authors history. God is the one who's in charge. You know, prophecy exists, right? Biblical prophecy exists. How could that exist if God wasn't the one steering the ship here? God is the one guiding this. God is the one directing the events of human history, which is why we have prophecy. It's why we have confidence in what God is doing. Turn with me to Jeremiah 18. Turn forward in your Bible in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18. Because what we see in Scripture is just as God is fully, truly, thoroughly in charge and sovereign and involved, it is equally true that we have a responsibility to behave wisely and to advocate for wise behavior in the culture. Just as God is fully in charge of all of this, we are responsible for our actions. Look with me starting in verse 5. The prophet was brought down to the potter's house, and he's observing the potter. And listen to what the Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18.5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Wow! Just pause for a moment and think of that illustration. The potter has full manipulation over the clay, doesn't he? The potter has full freedom over the clay, doesn't he? He is not beholden to the clay's desires, is he? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice... Then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So these statements are true here in Jeremiah. God has the nations in full control in His hand. And if God gives them over to their sin, though He had said, I will build you up, if He hands them over to their sin and they continue in their sin, He will destroy them. They will receive a just judgment, a deserved judgment. And we would, be, we would just be shocked if God didn't do that. And again, if there's a nation that God says He will destroy, like Nineveh perhaps, He says He will destroy them, yet God grants them repentance. He won't uproot them, but He will establish them. And again, we would be shocked if He didn't, because God is faithful in His judgment. God is faithful in His grace. But we have to let our motivation be holy because I'm afraid that when we get into our thinking of it's up to us, there's a, there's a holy way to think about it where we can say, it, 
It is needed in our country that we repent. It is needed in our country that we turn from these sins that we've indulged in. It's, it's necessary that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're calling people to repentance, if you mean it's up to us in that sense, that can be a holy desire. But if the thinking behind the statement or, or the mere thought, it's up to us, is that we need to try to escape the wrath of God, so we need to get together and strategically put the right people in the right places because it's up to us to escape the wrath of God. I'm afraid we're off base. Because when God determines that He is going to bring judgment, God will bring judgment. Our motivation needs to be holy, not selfish. When we think that it's up to us, we want to prolong the lifestyle we've become accustomed to. We're comfortable. It's up to us to keep up our comforts. It's not a holy desire. It's a selfish desire. And let us keep in mind that God has never punished a righteous nation, has He? Anytime we see God's judgment poured out on a nation, it was well-deserved and it's inescapable. We cannot escape politically, what we have earned spiritually. As a nation, if we have reaped or if we have sown sin, we will reap judgment. No political strategy will allow us to escape the wrath of God because God is in charge. And He's in charge of plagues too, by the way, but that's a different sermon. A third statement I want us to think about is the statement, now is the time for a perfect kingdom. And I'd venture to guess that none of you, I hope none of you, has said this out loud, <laughs> thinking about the election. But if we're honest with ourselves, I bet perhaps the majority of us have had dreams of a certain best-case scenario that to us personally would be some sort of utopia. And we've placed our hope And what might happen so that life here and now could be some version of our dream scenario? Well, now is not the time for a utopia. Now is not the time for a perfect kingdom. In case you haven't noticed, this place isn't heaven. (laughs) I know that's not really shocking to most of us, but sometimes we get thinking that We can make this place heaven. Well, this place isn't heaven. We find in Scripture that for there to be a new heavens and a new earth, all things have to be made new, which means things have to pass away. For things to be new, the old things have to pass away. And there will be a judgment by fire in which all things will burn, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, it says in 2 Peter. And things will be made new. We find in Jesus' teachings that His kingdom is not of this world. Turn with me to John, the book of John in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament. John chapter 18, when Jesus was arrested, when He was in the presence of Pilate, and He had His conversation with that ruler, He declared that His kingdom was not of this world. He wasn't establishing heaven on earth exhaustively. There was something spiritual going on. Look with me at John 18, verse 33. John chapter 18, starting at verse 33. It says, 
Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? You see, in Jesus' words here, His teaching that's been preserved for us in the conversation with Pilate, it's plain that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. He's doing something in the hearts of men, establishing His kingdom because He affirms that He is indeed a king. Who else could have a kingdom but a king? And Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. We're not going to see His kingdom fully, truly, thoroughly fulfilled in this world. So, if we start dreaming of a utopia, you need to remind yourself, trouble will still exist tomorrow. Trouble will still exist November 4th. Trouble will still exist in 2021. I know many of you are eager to get to 2021. There will still be trouble in 2021. But you know what? Faith, hope, and love will still exist tomorrow. Faith, hope, and love will still exist on November 4th. Faith and hope and love will still exist in 2021 because that spiritual kingdom has begun. Because God is building His church. Because God is redeeming the hearts of men and knitting us together in the message of the gospel. We pray in the battlefield of kingdom warfare. We are between the earthly and the spiritual. We have a very real understanding of that which is earthly and that which is spiritual. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us the model prayer. He teaches us how to pray. And you know these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what is the next verse? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is coming. But it's not of this world. It's coming. There's a battle between the earthly and the heavenly, and we are in the middle of it. And this kingdom that is coming will be ruled by Jesus Himself. This is a Christmas passage. You know this passage pretty well too, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given, right? The government will rest on His shoulders. Is that happening yet? <laughs> no. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Look at the very next verse. Amazing thought. 
There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is what we have to look forward to. Jesus running the government. (laughs) Jesus being the king. Jesus being the governor on earth. But it's not of this world. It's not happening yet. Just as we live between the earthly and the spiritual, we live squeezed between the already and the not yet, don't we? Right now, there is an already aspect to Jesus' kingdom because if you're a Christian this morning, is Jesus your king? Yes, He is. Are you a part of a kingdom today? Yes, you are. Is Jesus reigning? Yes, He is. So we have these already realities, but there's a lot of not yet still to come. When we get to the millennium, when Jesus is ruling and reigning on earth for a thousand years... There will be more of the not yet that will be already. There will be more things fulfilled. We will see more promises realized, and yet there will still be some more to be fulfilled. As we enter into the new heaven and new earth, as all things are truly made new and we enter into an eternity that is unchanging in all of its ways, there will be no more not yet. All things will be realized. And we are working our way out of the already and into the fulfillment of the not yet. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So we recognize that in this life, good things happen as the world declines. And we pray for the establishment of God's will. Have you thought about what that means when we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, what's God's will like in heaven? There's no sin no sin whatsoever. It's perfect. And in this life, though things are generally getting worse and worse leading to the Lord's return, He is still faithful and kind and gracious to give us some blips like that, some moments like that, where we can experience some pure spiritual beauty, uh, beautiful realities, where we can experience the fellowship of God's people where we can experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Yet we're looking forward to the time when His perfect kingdom will come. Because it's not of this world, it's not right now, it's coming. He will initiate it in His timing, and we look forward to that. We don't seek to politically strategize and create our version of a perfect kingdom on earth. Give that up. Give that up. If you haven't given it up yet, give it up now. It's not going to happen. And instead, put all the eggs in a different basket. Jesus is coming to initiate His perfect kingdom. And even now, He's ruling and reigning. And He never loses an election, does He? And we have our hope in that. So as we think biblically and not politically, and as we gain this perspective... We do well now, as we've, we've taken down some statements, to build up some statements, to put forth, if we're not to think this way, then how are we to think? Let me give you a few things. Uh, but first, I want to share with you a, a quote from Francis Schaeffer when he talked about how we speak of these things to our children, to the next generation. He said in his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, 
He said, one of the greatest injustices we do to our young people is to ask them to be conservative. Christianity is not conservative, but revolutionary. We don't teach people, we don't encourage people to be a certain way politically, to act a certain way behaviorally alone. But we raise the next generation in the truth, teaching them that Christianity truly is revolutionary. It's always reforming, isn't it? That we're always seeking to to put the gospel in all aspects of the culture. Don't hold back, but move forward with gospel confidence. And if we're thinking as biblical revolutionaries and not political revolutionaries, then there are a few things we need to focus on. The second part of this little devotional is God's unchanging will for you. And let me give you three things to think about. The first is love for God. The greatest commandment, right? To love the triune God of the universe with all of your being, to love Him, to start every day, to begin each moment with a love for God. He is the one we depend on for everything, for all things, for breath. We depend on God, and the Scriptures teach us that the righteous shall live by faith. God's unchanging will for you begins with loving Him. And as we do so, we do well to constantly bear in mind the creator and creature dynamic that we have with God, that He is our creator. He is the one who made us. He's the one who's in charge of all things. He has all authority over us. And it's an all-encompassing worldview. As you go and move about in this world and as you look at the plants and as you look at human interaction, as you look at all things, we need to see that creator and creature dynamic and be renewed in our love for God. And to focus supremely on loving the triune God, believing in, following the triune God of the universe. And during tumultuous times in a nation, times that we've begun to experience and we will likely experience more and more in the days ahead, we do well to remember that in the love of God, anger is nearly always selfish. And anger draws you away from the love of God. You will be tempted to have your heart pulled toward anger, outrage, outbursts of wrath, fear and worry and anxiety. That pulls you away from the love of God. Be renewed each and every day in humble submission to your Creator to love Him first, to seek Him first. The second encouragement I have for you is to love your brother and neighbor. The second greatest commandment, the second is like the first, isn't it? To love your neighbor as yourself. And the new commandment that Jesus gave to us in John 13, that we love one another. We need to love God and to love others. When thinking about loving others, I want you to first remember that Satan is the chief enemy. No human being is your chief enemy. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do battle spiritually. We are not fighting against other human beings, ultimately, but rather spiritual things. And we seek to destroy spiritual strongholds. When you lose perspective on this and you begin to think politically, strategically against your neighbor, 
and against your brother or sister, you start to lose a lot of your friends, don't you? When you lose perspective in this way, you start to lose those relationships that God has given you. Have a perspective that is gospel-oriented first, saturated with the gospel. And those around us are watching and listening to how we treat other people. The world is constantly watching, and the church should be watching herself. Are we acting just like the world in the way that we treat other people? Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the last book I'll ask you to turn to. 1 Peter chapter 2. As the world around us throws a fit, and I'm sure you've already seen on the news how businesses in Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, other places, they've already boarded up their windows. They've already prepared for riots and for outrage. Are we acting like the world? Maybe we're not smashing a window with a brick and looting, but are we doing just as much damage with our words? Are we doing damage with the way we behave? We need to think about our actions and our words. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. 1 Peter 2.11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. And you know the context of Peter's letter here to these believers is persecution. These believers were dispersed. They were facing real deal persecution. And Peter's admonition, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, was this, keep your behavior excellent among them. We are to think about what we say and what we do, and we are to have excellent behavior together as the church, not all off on our own seeking how we should behave, but we should sharpen one another in the context of the fellowship of the church. Look at verse 13 with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whoa! I don't like that, that verse, do you? It's inspired. Let's swallow it. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That last verse gives us four directives. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Are those four directives needed for you? They are. Are they needful for this church? They are. 
Are they necessary for the American church right now? Yes. Let's focus on these things. Same book, next chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3, and again, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Let's look to honor others together, to be different from the world in the way we respond and be different from the world in the things we say. No matter what happens in the coming days, whatever God sees fit to do in our nation, let's keep our behavior excellent and let's honor all people. Let's love the brotherhood. Let's fear God and honor the king, no matter who that king is. You think that king was a good guy, by the way, that Peter was talking about? You think it was your favorite president? That's who he was talking about? He wasn't talking about Calvin Coolidge to to me. (laughs) He was talking about their king at that time who was killing Christians. Why honor him? Because every governor has been placed there by God. You're honoring God when you honor him. That's why children are to honor their parents. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say if they're good parents. You honor the institutions placed there by God. What can man do to you anyway? I'll tell you, he can do two things to you. He can cause you to suffer, which just makes you more like Jesus. Or he can take your life away, your temporary earthly life, and put you into the very real presence of Jesus. That's what man can do. He can make you more like Jesus or he can send you there. That's it. So when the Scripture says, what can man do to me? The answer really is nothing. God's got you covered. He's going to teach you more of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, which Paul longed to know, Philippians chapter 3. Or He's just going to take you home. Isn't that wonderful? Or do you love this world too much to see that as beautiful? Think about it. The church grows in situations like this too, so let's make prayer our priority in it. Let's encourage one another in it. Because modern man, he doesn't know why man has any meaning. Modern man can't answer the why questions. We can. We can. And as we love God and we love others, there will be so many opportunities for us, no matter what's going on in the world around us to be little lights for the kingdom, to step forth and to fulfill our role as ambassadors for Christ. And let me remind you of this too, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Love others. Love God and love others. That's our calling. And our calling is ultimately the third and final thing. Our calling is ultimately to sacrifice and to be renewed to present ourselves as living sacrifices. You know this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me give you just a few concluding thoughts as we seek to renew our minds together. The first thought, God never abandons His people. He never abandons His people. We start from a position of having God now and forevermore, and no one can take that away from us. We have a blessed hope. I want you also to think about that as you consider the sins of others, first consider your own sin. Our Savior taught us to watch for those planks that end up in our eyes. Have your mind renewed by examining your own heart, to examine yourself, and to confess often before the Lord. Our goal in this life is to abide in Christ. I love John 15. When Jesus talks about how He's the vine and we're the branches, we are to abide in Him because apart from Him, verse 6, we can do nothing. What does it mean to abide? Well, we continuously trust in a sovereign God and a simple gospel. Two SG statements, a sovereign God and a simple gospel. We abide in Christ, we rest in Christ, and we look forward to His perfect kingdom forsaking the world around us. Another encouragement for you, ask God often for humility. You ever ask God for humility? You know God is humble, right? Jesus humbled Himself, Philippians 2, where we just were. He humbled Himself by taking the form of a bondservant. God has humility just as He has wisdom, and He shares that with us. Ask God for humility and ask God for practical holiness and wisdom because we need it so bad. We encounter so many situations where we don't know what to do. We never would have thought we would have ended up in this situation where you have to make a choice to what to do. You have to make a choice for what to believe on this or or what you can endorse or what you must reject, and it's all so complicated. But you can ask God for the holiness and wisdom needed in those specific situations. And God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will guide you and direct you. You lean not on your own understanding, but you trust in God, and He makes your paths straight. Be renewed in your mind in that way. And remember this, today is one day closer to Christ's return than yesterday. (laughs) He is coming. And we say, come quickly, don't we? He is coming. 
And we must live in light of that hope. The constant teaching of the New Testament isn't just that Jesus is coming back. It's Jesus is coming back, so think this way, live this way. Keep fixed on Jesus. Follow Jesus in every single moment. Make that your priority. We can't compartmentalize life and say, well, this, this part of life isn't for Jesus. He's Lord over that part of life. He's Lord over every moment of your life. So I didn't, I didn't talk to you about voting, and I didn't mention the candidates. I just want to say how you vote does matter. How you participate in the culture, whether it's through elections or whatever it is, all of that matters. Do not employ carnal pragmatism in those areas. Don't forsake all these things that I just discussed from the Scriptures. Don't forsake all of those things in the ways that you engage with the culture and the ways that you participate in this country. Incorporate them. Prioritize wisdom. Prioritize justice. Prioritize truth in the ways that you engage in this life. And prioritize the gospel, not just in elections, but in all things, including elections. Prioritize the things God has given you as His creature and as His child, as priorities. I want to close by reading an excerpt from a, a book that was published this year called The Gathering Storm by Al Mohler. It's a good book. You should, you should consider picking up the book. It provides great insights to the world around us. But I'm going to read a whole paragraph here from this book and we'll close with his words, not mine. Moeller writes, Christians not only must confront this storm with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must do so with full faith. Our hope does not rest with temporal political victory, though it understands the importance of politics. It rests in the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It rests with the one through whom all things were created. Our faith is in the one who was nailed to the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and established his unchallenged rule over the cosmos. Death is defeated, the head of the serpent crushed. The attempt of secularism to usurp the role of the Son of God amounts to the height of human folly. Nothing will prevail over our God. Nothing can withstand the power of the gospel. Father, we do thank You that nothing will prevail but You. Your will will be done. We are looking forward to the day that we will participate in the kingdom, where we will see You face to face, where we will have a true, real engagement with our Savior that now it is spiritual, but then it will be face-to-face. We thank You that we are a part of this spiritual kingdom, that You have done this in our lives, that You've given us Your Holy Spirit who abides within, that we're never abandoned by You because the Comforter has come and He is with us always. We thank You that the Son of God intercedes for us each and every moment and that He is Your Anointed One, he is the one who will rule with a rod of iron and the nations will be 
ashamed. All of the nations that have turned away and gone their own way and rejected you will be rebuked and judged fully. They will be found under your wrath. You are the victor. You are the sovereign. And we ask that it would start with us. That you would rule and reign in our hearts, directing each and every moment. That you would rule and reign in this church. That you would give us great unity in the gospel. And that as the world around us shakes, as you shake this earth, that your word would be proven true, that your kingdom is unshaken. It cannot be shaken. We thank you that you've given us this beautiful faith and that you've given us one another. Make our motivation love and love alone for you, for the brethren, and for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.